Welcome to episode four of the Nerd Culture Podcast. Now coming at ya fortnightly. Oh, right. chairs, yeah. I'm your host David, and with me we have Richo. When I was young, I dreamed of being a baseball. Crystal? Really? <laughs> you know we all dream of being a baseball. I dream of being a cricket ball. That's fair. And Luke? I've got to say, I've got to say Richo, your life ambitions don't seem to be especially high, do they? <laughs> I know, he's got a point there, Richard. Look, deep down, most people, you all most, want to be a baseball. Most people dream of being, you know, baseball players or football players. The actual ball itself, I've got to admire your ingenuity there, Dave, and your imagination. But really, come on. <laughs> so how's everybody going? How's their fortnight been now that we're doing fortnightly instead of monthly? How do you handle it? Too much? Well, it went by really quickly. <laughs> In true Bart Simpson fashion, I have not changed my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can tell by the smell. I, on the other hand, have been uh, doing very well for the last fortnight until I got here and people questioned my desire to be a baseball. We'll you make know. him happy later by beating him around the head with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> so continuing our Blade Runner-esque theme for uh, these podcasts, we've got a dust jacket off the racks and, of course, the standards coming soon and next episode. Uh, this... Dust Jacket Edition will be Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. As always, Richard, taking control. As I'm sure many of you out there know, um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was the book that actually inspired Blade Runner. Um, I think it's fairly safe to say Loosely based on Very the novel. Loosely. <laughs> um, well, there's more correlations in it than what you think. Uh, I, I discovered. There is rereading there's it. No doubt about that. True, but it's still mm. quite loose in comparison to yeah. some other novelizations. No, some other adaptations, like the Da Vinci True. Code. <laughs> <laughs> you had to go there, didn't you? And also, in keeping with our theme of uh, reading the greatest science fiction novels of all time. Uh, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep actually made it to number 11 Ooh. on uh, Sci-Fi lists? Well, list I totally disagree with that. 211, we'll maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, so number 11, it's actually the highest of uh, Philip K. Dick's books, which is interesting because I believe he has five or six novels on the list. So, yes, he's obviously very well respected. Um, so yes, do androids dream of electric sheep? Uh, it's set in San Francisco in the year 2021, uh, and the world has the been... original version actually had it set in like 1998 or something like that, yeah. And then later editions changed it. I'm not sure to be honest with you. I've yeah, got I'm pretty the... sure that's the case. Yeah, I'm I've got sure the, the version I read was in 1998. Well. Yeah. I've got the Sci-Fi Masterworks version, which yeah, the updated uh, version. The updated version has yeah basically been set to 2021. Um, so yeah, San Francisco 2021, uh, the world has been decimated by World War Terminus. That's a cool name. It is a very cool name, and uh, from what we can gather, World War Terminus is basically a nuclear war because uh, the Earth is now covered in um, radioactive fallout. Which uh, they call dust. They do indeed. Most humans have actually uh, left the Earth, they've uh, basically fled to the off-world colonies to escape the radiation. And those uh, left behind, um, many are suffering from genetic abnormalities, um, and uh, you know they have to wear 
like lead cod pieces and things to protect themselves <laughs> uh, from the radiation. Lead and, chastity belts. And of course, in the off-world colonies, um, they've developed um, androids, basically, to much like in, much like in Blade Runner. Um, there's a company called the Rosen Institute who has developed androids, and the androids basically serve as manual labour on the off-world colonies. As it should be. And um, basically, in, uh, in the book, we find that um, several androids have actually escaped and returned to Earth. And um, we're introduced to Rick Deckard, our main character, who is actually a bounty hunter working for the San Francisco police. And his job is to hunt down and kill the androids. And funnily um, enough, never referred to as a Blade Runner. Never referred to as a Blade Runner. Blade Runner is actually a term um, created by William S. Burroughs, who uh, wrote um, an early draft of the script for Blade Runner, I believe. Thank goodness he didn't write the actual draft. Before Hampton got his hands on it. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's where the Blade Runner term came from. So, as you can see, we're already starting to see... Does Deckard wear a lead codpiece? I can't remember if that's actually specifically said. I think he does. He does. He does. Got to protect the goods. You got to... Well, it's fair enough. (laughs) Um, so as you can see, we're already beginning to see uh, where some of the similarities and differences lie mm. um, in between the novel and uh, the film Blade Runner. One of the major differences is that um, in this world, and this is where the title comes from, um, animals are rare to the point of being almost non-existent. And, um, they were the first to go, yeah? They were. And um, owning, owning, yeah, a real, yeah. Yeah, owning a real animal... Is actually uh, seen as a status symbol mm-hmm. in this world, um, and if you don't have a real animal, you'll often uh, purchase an electric animal, uh, an isn't android it, animal sort of, to not, replace. Not only is it status, but it's also isn't it kind of expected that you need that you to, look after that you look yeah. after all animals? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's almost le- it's almost law, isn't it? Yeah, because there's a moment in the book where you learn that the sheep, the real sheep that he has, yeah. has died actually died. Has died, died, died because you know he ate the bale of hay, but Deckard forgot to take, you know, the wiring out, and the sheep yeah. ate that wire. Oh. Yeah. And so, yeah, so he buys the electric sheep to disguise the fact that his real sheep has mm. died. Yeah. Um, we're also introduced to our, uh, I guess, our second main character, who is actually called John Isidore, who is a uh, delivery man for a fake veterinarian service. Um, <laughs> basically, if your animal is, quote, sick, unquote... They will come out and supposedly, uh, you know, cure the animal and help it out. But it's in like fact, tech support. but in fact, really, what they are is tech support, <laughs> and they're coming to basically kickstart your animal. And, and he's, uh, sort of, he's sort of the uh, the book. So in the film, uh, J. S. Sebastian would be sort of a, sort of yeah, a, a, a similar, corresponding relatively yep. relatively because in the book, uh, yep. Rick's Rick's story sort of runs simultaneous with. John is the voice, yeah. Yeah, probably the the main difference is whereas Sebastian is um, actually seen as in the film as somebody who has actually worked on and created replicants. Very intelligent, whereas this guy's yeah. John Isidore is actually um, yeah, he's what's called special. Um, Yeah, no, the specials are people who are basically either physically or mentally handicapped, um, usually due to you know fall out from the war and um, yeah and they are the derogatory term for them in the book is chicken heads so that means they can't go off world right they are not allowed off world because they're not allowed to do much at all yeah yeah really so delivery- they have to wear codpieces 
Well, they're too not... late. I'm yeah, obsessed they're... by these puppies. <laughs> it's I too late. I saw everything. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm. Um, yeah, so John Isidore does actually um, uh, befriend, kind of befriend, I suppose, um, Roy Batty and uh, his fellow uh, androids. Uh, but the you relationship... get a better deal out of it than Paul Sebastian does in the film. He does, <laughs> but the relationship the relationship's not as strongly developed. Um, no. I mean, it is very, very obvious right from the outset that um, that Roy and his people are, are using him. are using him, and they they see him as a joke. Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty cruel, but still, probably the the, the biggest um, additional element. Uh, that is in the book that isn't really in the film at all is um, this concept of mercerism, which really lies very much at the heart of the novel. Yeah, and prevents it, presents pretty much the core um, sort of thematic presence in the book. Um, it's basically a pseudo religion, mm-hmm. um, like a cult, really. It's it's probably more than a cult yeah. because it seems it's, 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 it's widespread. More widespread appeal. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, and. Um, Basically, every pretty much every household has what's called an empathy box, mm-hmm. which enables you to make a direct connection with Mercer. Um, but really, once you sort of uh, grab hold of it, it kind of creates almost like a virtual experience where you have this old man Mercer, who is uh, you know pushing this boulder mm. up a mountain, and as he goes, these figures that you can't really make out are throwing rocks and stones and things at him as he pushes this up and. Um, yeah, basically, um, these you n- never find out who these shadowy figures are meant to be, but uh, the damage that is caused to Mercer can actually reflect on the people that are using the empathy box as well. And, and he also has some sort of um, make sure you level animals deal as well. Yeah, well, yeah, that's it's it's part of what what uh, the Mercer experience because you can't actually do anything to help Mercer, yeah. right? All you can do is sort of feel empathy and sympathy towards him. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really the the I guess the defining core element of mercerism is that feeling empathy towards uh, others and towards all life, mm-hmm. um, and that that sort of forms the core of um, I guess the moral dilemma in the book. Mm. And the, the book itself opens up with um, Deckard and his wife um, arguing over the setting of their. Um, yeah, she's, mis- she's because she's misusing it. She's misusing it, yeah. and you know, but that's that's not we're having to wake up, and in order to feel good about the day, you have, you have uh, and something in your house that alter, affects your mood. Yeah, mm. um, my, my favourite bit where he dials up a mood to make her bow to the wisdom of her husband. Yes, <laughs> well, I'm going to get yes. one of those bucks. <laughs> Wives around the world just all laugh simultaneously. At that point. Um, but that, that, that's the, the I mean to get I mean that's sort of one of the core of the thing that really that this. And later on the show, which is you know the whole idea that humans have become unfeeling or incapable yeah. of well and, being yeah. able to express well, how, how much feeling do you want to have when you live in a world after World War Terminus? Well, it's it's but it's an attempt but an attempt to engage in in yeah. something, but they can't actually do it themselves. They need something artificial. That's right, because yeah. life is so crap that uh, in that particular world, yeah. I mean, I, I right, that is inti- artificial intelligence, recreational drugs, you know. But part of what um, part of why. You know, what Mercerism is, is expressing in the book is um, that empathy is what sets humanity as, apart from the androids. So in, in, in the book, the, the Voigt-Kampf test actually assesses an android's empathic 
reactions to these sort of abstract mind games often involving animals and cruelty to animals but also involving sex mm. and it's the reaction of um, that the androids have that shows whether they're faking empathy or not mm-hmm. so that 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 drive of empathy is, is is present and mercerism then reflects that because you know empathy with with all living things is what's seen as the defining quality that separates man from machine that yeah. separates man from machine um, which then, of course, presents the interesting moral dilemma in the book, mm. which is, you know, the bounty hunters are actually asked to not empathise with the, the targets they're hunting, the, to see them as machines. Um, so really, they're being asked to do the exact opposite of what Mercerism is, mm. is saying, which is, you know, expressing empathy towards all life. Um, and the interesting thing with Deckard here is that he does actually feel a certain level of empathy as the book progresses towards those that he's hunting and towards the androids. So that makes him you know, more in keeping with the sort of Mercerism's main tenets, but also less effective at the job that he's meant to be doing. I mean, I saw that as the book effectively saying that the bounty hunters actually have to become more like the androids. Mm. Um, Understanding think, your enemy yeah. in an attempt to... yeah. Which I think, then, yeah, as I said, poses an interesting moral dilemma for the book. Well, I, I originally read it a long time ago and, and wasn't all that impressed with it. And I recently read it again after having read a number of cyberpunk stuff. And I can see where a lot of that stuff's come from now. I mean, the, the Isidore character could easily be a character in a Gibson novel. Mm. So I, I'm sort of enjoying it a little bit more this time around with that you can you can definitely see the um the influence it's had on later science later books. fiction yeah. no doubt about that and as you say, definitely on the cyberpunk not just on um not just with sort of the the characters and sort of the more emphasis on it's the kind of feel too so exactly. it has a kind of feel exactly. to it and this book has yeah. the same sort of feel yeah well the, the to android stream has very much there's a, a real sort of paranoia mm. in the book that is um and a fear in the book that is quite prevalent later on in Cyberpunk. Yeah, well, Deckard's um, obsession with getting a live animal is, well, even within the context of that society, is still kind of weird because they're still human and then some humans will just, just not care. It, it, so it's obsession's bordering on the extreme. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting contrast because he is being asked to be more cold and clinical um, in his hunting of the androids. The quest for a sheep is almost like an attempt to sort of reconnect with his humanity. He's channeling it somewhere. Yeah. Else, yeah. Um, yeah. Which then extends into back into the mercerism. Exactly, exactly. Um, element of the book because that comes into play sort of not necessarily sort of a bit more symbolically, I guess, towards the end. He's not searching for mercerism as such, but mercerism um, becomes, without giving anything away, um, entwined in his... Well, he has almost an epiphany hmm. towards the end there with yeah. Mercerism, where, um, yeah, which is kind of a, a reconnecting hmm. with that uh, that humanity. Hmm. Um, well, a lot of things we're talking about in terms of comparing it to Blade Runner, I've got two questions to put to the, um, the group. One is, did anyone actually read this before Blade Runner? No. Or has everyone read it after? I read it because of Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah Blade same Runner, here. Because of same Blade here. Runner. Yeah. Um, and is it possible then to talk about the, f- the book and judge it without Blade Runner itself? Has has this book become so entwined mm. with the highly influent and even more so, even more influential film 
Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I take your point uh, that mm. you can't you can't get the film out of your head when you're reading it. You can see the film in your head, yeah. and Harrison Ford did such a good good, good job of playing oh. Deckard. That's that's the only way you can yeah, perceive him. That's my th- that's my yeah. thing as well. I mean, I'm actually not a huge fan of the book, um, yeah. and I much prefer the film. You know, um, yeah, same. But part of that is you know I've, I've you know seen the films does been seen I've seen the film a it dozen times. Probably makes I've the book the more book. enjoyable because it brings it to life a bit. More. It brings it to life a little bit more, but at the same time because of the sort of the more stripped down streamlined nature of the film yeah. a lot of a lot of the excess stuff the extra stuff or the, to be fair to dick the stuff that he created before yeah. the film came along um seemed to me a bit superfluous like i didn't like the mercerism aspect because mm. i well, felt that it was unnecessary no i didn't mind that yeah i felt that the, the first time i read it i actually came away completely disappointed yeah and i think very much for that reason it's it's difficult because to look at it objectively because yeah. You know, I just declared on the last episode that, uh, you know, Blade Runner was the second greatest science fiction film of all time. Yeah, so, um, clearly, yeah, so what was the first? Oh, my f- absolute favourite movie of all time is 2001. Oh, right. Um, yeah. It's lying, it's secretly, let's say, Pitch Black or The Fifth Element or <laughs> no, 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 Showgirls. Arm- Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, Robot should, Monster. Should, <laughs> the Da Vinci that, Code. That could be a, a, a I top think I'm five. Robot Monster. That could, be a top five. that could be a top five later on, top five well, uh, sci-fi films. I, oh, we'll I read it originally for much the same reason as I read Star Trek novels, because I thought it would bring the movie to life through, mm. a, through a novel format, so that I actually was kind of disappointed when I yeah, did actually, it, because it wasn't yeah. I'm, with you, I'm with you totally, because yeah. my copy actually had the posters for the film on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I, thought it was a, I thought it was a novelisation. No, I knew it was. I knew it came before the film. but I didn't, so I read it and I was... What is going on here? <laughs> well, what I found was um, in doing a second reading in you know, preparing for this podcast that because I went into the book with no expectation of you know that it would be the equal of Blade Runner, I sort of was able to go into it without expecting something other than what the book itself is. Yeah, I had exactly the same experience. Yeah, yeah, I certainly got a lot more out of it on the second reading. Yeah, than, I, I'm uh, saying because after, I mean after I read it the first time and realised that it wasn't a direct novelisation. Then I uh, did some research and you know, found out what was going on, and, yeah. and reread it. I still hated it, but, <laughs> but for different reasons. Yeah. Well, there's another sort of angle to the book that I wouldn't mind touching on as well, um, and that's the question of uh, reality and what's real mm. in in the novel. I mean, there's there's um, a sort of interesting little subplot going with. Um, a talk show host called Buster Friendly. Oh, that's oh weird, yeah, he's Buster. He? Yeah. Is he like he's on like twenty three hours a day? He is. He's he like is. the Eddie Maguire. Of <laughs> 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 well, well, the interesting thing for him here is he's actually questioning Mercerism mm-hmm. and saying that basically Mercerism is fake, yeah. which it clearly is. Yeah, I'm with you, Buster. So you have Buster. so you have that plus you know the 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 questioning of you know whether the androids are really alive or not and whether they are just fake humans and machines or whether you know there's more to it than you know the the reality of the animals with the fake animals mm-hmm. um you know um the questioning of as uh, luke pointed out early on um of the emotions of the characters you know when they've got a device that can stimulate certain emotions within them mm-hmm. are they really experiencing those emotions or not or is it a completely manufactured uh reality that they live in um which I think poses some very interesting questions and is, is very much, a, I guess, a theme in a lot of Dick's mm. um, yeah, stories, yeah, this question of what is real and what isn't. I mean, you, with that, you've also got to understand that he himself was um, 
drug addict. Yeah, a drug addict. He was partic- but particularly hallucinogens. Yeah. In an attempt to actually, you know, find the um, the reality behind reality, I guess you could call it. Um, so that's, and, and, that's and there is there is a of... lovely drug taking scene into Android's dream mm. as well. Um, um, the two key scenes in this that stood out for me were the was the initial void conf test with Rachel. Yeah. Because that was one of the first moments where. Um, I went, okay, this is in the film, but it's still a little bit different because he's actually yeah. having to use tricks. It's and, actually better, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And I love the, I love the, you know, his final thing to really get to her and see what it, he's pulling up his, you know, nothing prepared, nothing stated, just pulling up his briefcase and sort of rubbing it, saying, you know, this is genuine, real leather, yeah. and watching her horrified reaction. And Did you say baby hide? Or baby hide? Baby yeah, hide. Baby yes. Hide. <laughs> you know, watching watching her her reaction to that, and it, it it's fabulous. That's how that's how we tricks are. I like that aspect. The other bit that I liked is um, the is when he gets his partner, and then his yeah. partner is discovered to be an android, mm. and the sort of the conflict of like you know I like this guy, but yeah. um, I but I've got a job to do here, and, and I, I thought that was actually nice uh, because that was also part of the um, one of the things that I didn't foresee coming because yeah. it wasn't part of the film. Yeah, there was a bit of a surprise there. Yeah. Um, Still not enough to make it good, though. Not enough to make it, <laughs> not enough to make it great. But as I said before, we are judging it in the shadow of the film. So What, what I think is most lacking, um, from my perspective, and, and this is, once again, it is in comparison to Blade mm-hmm. Runner, there's no real depth or motivation behind the androids. Yeah, that's like a, yeah, they, they come from point. the Martian colony. Mm-hmm. They come to Earth, but with no real explanation as to why they've come to Earth or what their motivation for coming to Earth is whereas mm. so as we're in Blade Runner we understand, you know, they've got a four year life cycle. Yeah, They're specific. coming to Earth to try and, and expand that life and, and so you get a real great in depth look at the book doesn't at, even at mention the, the four year life cycle, does it? I don't think so. Uh, no, not that I, I think can they're actually immortal. Yeah. Mm. But there's yeah, but so they, they just sort of they just come to Earth and they actually I think they come to Earth just because they're in, in, the, in the book, um, actually, I think, I think it does say. It doesn't it say that they come to Earth because they just want to snub their nose as authority. Which is, a, which, is a pretty, which is a pretty sort of weak yeah, like It's kind of a re- reflection of the youth of the era. Yeah, snubbing yeah. Their, that was a big thing, snubbing your nose at authority. I think question, what it is. It's like, question we're not authority. allowed to go to Earth, so we are going to Earth. Yeah, yeah. but it, do, it doesn't really give a lot of... Um, it doesn't really give a depth to the characters that the film does. They're just shadows. Yeah. Um, Except for Rachel. And even Rachel's very different in the book. Mm-hmm. She's a lot colder. Um, oh, she, well, you actually get to see her or something, but she kills the goat. Ah, yes, the the revenge act she has for his killing the replicants. And, and I, love his, I love his reaction. It's just is just nonchalant. I was like, well, at least at least, at least he didn't kill my wife. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, and it's just it's it, that's that's the final point where he's like, well, we actually now has some humanity now it's like well yeah. I value my wife far more than I value just yeah he's, he's, re- he's reconnected with humanity through yeah. everything yeah. he's experienced well, the, the Deckard character starts out very emotionally stunted and yeah. uh, he's very hard to connect with because he, yeah. on the one hand he's obsessed with his sheep but He's but almost dismissive yeah, of, his, and, and of his relationship and, with his wife. And when he's talking to his neighbour, he he suddenly becomes a bit more human in confessing why he got the sheep and everything, and then he bit, mm. totally turns on him mm. for no apparent reason. But he loves yeah. his wife. Well, in the end, he does. <laughs> and it, it's Even though her husband is always wise. <laughs> the way it should be. Well, his experience in hunting the uh, androids and the epiphany he has where he does reconnect with um, Mercerism, not on... A superficial level, but on the level of um, empathy and emotion that Mercerism sort of touts as its main tenet, mm. 
that is really the the turning point for him in his in his character arc, where he really does begin to understand that those human emotions and connections are what's important, mm. and that the the sheep, as you say, was just an obsession, um, and the goat is just yeah, just an obsession, and uh, yeah, and that that's the point the book uh, brings home quite well in the end. So, final thoughts, ratings, Richard. I'm going to give it uh, three and a half looks. Generous. Um, on first reading many years ago I would have given it maybe two and a half looks but I, I think I'll go with Richard now and give it three and a half reading it through new eyes and that's why Crystal is awesome <laughs> the there thing. are many reasons why Crystal is awesome for this podcast <laughs> Crystal is awesome Luke um, I'm giving this two looks um, it's okay but um, first of all in, in comparison to the film no one here is good without the film still not you know, not the best that science fiction has ever achieved, and not the not the definitive take on robots, not the definitive take on you know the human condition and um, and other questions related really, to that. Not, not not even the best Philip K. Dick book. Not it. That's I'm, totally. I'm totally with really you. I'm not a not a big Philip K. Dick fan anyway. No. I'll confess that right now. I'm not a big Philip K. Dick fan at all. Um, it's sort of just is. There was a couple. There are a couple of good scenes that I enjoyed. There's some okay writing, but. There's better. Uh, I'm, I'm with you as well. Not only am I not a Philip K. Dick fan, I'm actually not a Cyberpunk fan. So um, this is not the book for me. I give it one and a half looks. Um, Ooh, and that's only, I'm only giving it an extra half because I've read it again recently for you know this. And uh, that's three times I've read it now and three times I've wasted my time. So, uh, yeah, one and a half. What does that say about you? <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but yeah, I like—I don't like talking about things that I—I I mean, I couldn't remember, so I don't like discussing things that I don't know instantly. So, I mean, I'll happily discuss Twilight because you know I read it and I know it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> Twilight sucks. You, you had the, a, a very different reaction upon my first reading. I probably would have gone maybe two, two and a half. Oh, yeah. uh, Luke's for for, but uh, on rereading it. I actually got a lot more out of it on the second reading. And as I said, once I was able to sort of distance myself a little bit from Blade Runner and read it on its own merits, I I got a lot more out of it. Fair enough. Yeah, well, we can't do it, but it'd be interesting to see what we thought if we read it before. Hmm. Send us some feedback. Did did anybody out there actually read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep before... They saw Blade Runner because it'd be interesting yeah. to see. Oh, totally. I mean, sending whatever feedback you want, but that's an that's yeah. an awesome point, Richard. Yeah. 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 anybody anybody who read it, uh, or even you know their parents maybe, or whatever the case may be, read it before seeing the film. Please, I would you know, we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. That would be awesome. Yeah. Why is this book that's so high? Feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. Why is this book so high? Look, this. <laughs> I'm going to put this out there. Is it because of Blade Runner or is it because of the Meredith book? The, yeah. book's, the book's high on the list, A, because of Blade Runner. I mean, it's, yeah. the, the, the interesting thing with the list is that you'll find that a lot of the high-ranking books are books that um, have accompanying movies. I mean, uh, Starship Troopers is very high on the list. Uh, 2001, 1984. Starship Troopers is a bit of a book. Dune, you know. Um, Which makes it even more impressive that Foundation got up there. Absolutely, Foundation uh, coming in at uh, number three like it did was very impressive. But June's not surprising because it's often hailed as the greatest science fiction of all time. True, as is Foundation. As is Foundation. (laughs) But but that's part of it. But also, I mean, this is... um, uh, Philip K. Dick has two books that seem to be ranked 
incredibly high on any list I've encountered, and this was one of them, and the other one was a book called The Man in the High Castle. Um, which is a better book. Which we uh, we should review. We should. Since, uh, Even though we're not, Luke and I are not Philip K. Dick fans, but uh, hey, we'll review it. I haven't read it. I mean, we'll review Stranger in a Strange Land at some point, because I despise that book. I think it's ranked highly because, I mean, it, the book does pose some... Uh, some very interesting questions, and certainly at the point in which it was written, um, you know, it's talking about a disconnect from humanity and an attempt to re- reclaim humanity and ethics and empathy. Um, I, I can understand why that resonates with people. Fair enough. Thank you very much, Richard. Another very entertaining dust check. Thank you. And next up, we have Off the Racks. Okay, for this edition of Off the Racks, we have Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep comic adaptation from Boom Studios, uh, and also the prequel uh, Dust to Dust, also from Boom Studios. The comic, comic adaptation is uh, credited as written by Philip K. Dick, so that'll give you an idea of just how literal this comic is, with art by Tony Parker. The Dust to Dust miniseries is an authorised prequel to Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Uh, it's written by Chris Robertson, uh, with art by Robert Adler. Let's start off with the prequel, Dust to Dust. Um, it deals with the events uh, a bit after World War Terminus. I think it's ten years after World War Terminus or something like that, I don't know. Um, and the title, of course, is referring to the dust fallout that's affected everybody. So it deals with a bounty hunter uh, sent to kill some uh, androids, so... Not very original, <laughs> but it's uh, a group of androids have uh, come to Earth. They were about rebel against their masters, and uh, of course, because it's set in um, it's set in the Do Androids Dream universe, not the Blade Runner universe. Uh, the androids are, of course, a little bit different, and of course, he you know hunts them down and kills them. So I'm not giving anything away there. Uh, how he goes about is is oh, is this, you know slightly different to the book, uh, but a very interesting point is it also deals with the introduction of Mercerism. Oh, actually, not necessarily the introduction of, but just, you know, mercerism is in its its sort of start, and it's uh, it's just, it's now finding a place in society. Um, but it also deals with a very interesting character, whose name is Malcolm Reed. Now, Malcolm has a very interesting, uh, some might call affliction, uh, where he can sense the empathic spectrum of other people. Um, so that's like, driven him a bit mad. Like Deanna Troy. Uh, yeah, he's the Deanna Troy of the Deandro- Do Androids universe. Uh, but he's not as useless as Deanna Troy is. He actually is as useless, because uh, as you can imagine, he's he's uh, he's gone a bit mad. He's actually, I think he's actually technically a sociopath, and uh, he takes drugs in order to stop feeling these uh, feelings. But, of course, um, he's of, of great benefit to the Blade Runner, um, who is sent to kill these androids. Mm. And funnily enough, it's called retiring in this. The bounty mm. hunter. Mm. Interesting. Do they call him a Blade Runner in the end? Actually, yeah. Do they call, I don't think they do call him a Blade Runner. I think they do actually call him a Bounty Hunter. Good point, Crystal. So, yeah, so he is, uh, is actually pretty cool. He's um, He gets, you know, in, in typical comic fashion, gets into a bit of mishap and uh, stuff like that. But he's of great use, and without him, uh, the bounty hunter would have been able to do his job. Unfortunately, he also seems like a character designed specifically 
to justify the existence of this otherwise essentially pointless um, prequel. Like, there's, there's really not a lot in it at all that you can't get not from, a lot at all. There's also, from the actual story. There's also another character who's a scientist, I can't remember her name, but she's uh, she's got a, a live rabbit and she's trying to she's trying to figure out why this rabbit shows no sign of uh, having any problems with the dust and maybe she can find a cure and save all the other animals and stuff. And she's totally, totally useless. Um, her only main point is when she becomes a, a Mercer. She becomes obsessed with Mercerism. Um, but overall, um, the, the comic is actually quite boring. Uh, the artwork is very pedestrian. Uh, the supposed twist uh, at the end of the first half is painfully obvious from yeah. the start. Right. Okay, this whole thing seems to be... This whole thing smacks of we're trying to be original in our unoriginality. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's... It just suffers from the worst kind of uh, prequel problem. Mm. There's nothing in it that I don't get from the 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 actual Dwayne Dream of Electric Chips. Exactly story. right. Very, very good point. I mean, there's, there's a couple of th- cool things where they sort of touch on um, the androids. Why do the androids do what they do? Um, why they rebel? Uh, I mean, it's a lot... In, in the main story, so in, in Do Androids Dream, uh, it's just barely because they just because they're being petulant teenagers, but in this it's because they deem themselves superior to humans. And uh, the mm-hmm. fact that they don't feel emotions is actually seen as a strength, not a weakness. And they go out of their, their main mission, their, their main point to come to Earth is to wipe out humanity. So the leader of the androids, is he's, his main goal in life is to be the last you know, living thing. So he wants to see the last human die. Well, so obviously he doesn't succeed the book then continues on but uh, um, why he doesn't succeed is really not very interesting and uh, everything leading up to the point really not that interesting either um, but like I said there was there was actually there is one particular moment where uh, one of the androids is so obsessed he's so obsessed with life that he takes extreme pleasure in killing things and when they bust into his apartment it's just it's just full of dead animals um, all arranged in like a pattern and uh, it's quite freaky but well, other than that once again though that's not really anything that isn't in the original novel that's right I mean there's the scene in the novel where um, they're actually the androids are torturing the spider yep. and, and taking off the spider's legs and actually getting great pleasure from that whilst Buster Friendly is you know talking about how fake mercerism is and and yeah, so I just th- this prequel doesn't tell you anything that you want to know, yeah, or reveal any other great insight that isn't yeah. already there. It's totally pointless. And and the whole, uh, I mean, another problem, just flipping through this now, is that it just seems instead of being devoted to Do Android's Dream, it seems more certainly visually more devoted to Blade Runner itself. Yeah. So instead of actually, it's, doing it's it, taking elements from Blade Runner and trying to insert them into the. But into instead, of, the instead of trying to create some, the, the main problem with this, and the main problem I've got with the main series is that instead of actually trying to create something new and do something different and um, unique with a story that's already familiar it just seems to be going through the standard trope yeah totally um, so it's so in, in it's essentially it's uh, pointless and don't waste your time uh, the or oh, waste your time and then let us know what you think <laughs> well, yeah I suppose if you read it and you disagree then let us know uh, but we're trying to save you from <laughs> wasting your time. Read good comics. Now, the Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep adaptation, on the other hand, uh, is 
written by Philip K. Dick, uh, art by Tony Parker. Um, uh, first off, I just want to say the artwork is far better, yeah. and it's, it's far more worthy of existence. <laughs> Some, uh, the trade it's editions to exist. <laughs> have uh, excellent uh, Bill Sienkiewicz covers. Excellent stuff. Always a big fan of Bill. Um, and the comic uh, is is basically, I mean, it says it's an adaptation, but it's essentially, it's almost word for word the actual novel itself. So if you haven't read the novel and you're more of a visual person, then I highly recommend getting the comic itself, the comic series. It comes with five, five it volumes. It is quite literally, yeah. It just it's, seems to be word for word. It is. It's unbelievable. Yes. So it's... Uh, it is it's based essentially a picture book <laughs> so of, of the actual novel itself. Now, that has its strengths and its weaknesses, uh, but I've talked a lot, so I'm actually going to pass on to Crystal. Some of the criticism I've heard of this is because it's actually so literal, you get little things in between the bubbles like he said, said and she said and the little thought bits, which I don't mind. I Actually, reading this, I've discovered what my problem is with comics is that um, I'm a very visual person when I do read stuff. So when I'm reading a novel, it's all it, I can see everything in my head. So when I'm reading a, a, a comic, I, for some reason, my eyes skip over the pictures and I'm just following the words, and I probably don't get as much of an impact as what I should be getting because the comic, the in the comic, the pictures are also telling the story. Whereas with this, because it's such a literal copy of the book, you don't need the pictures. Yeah. They're they're a nice addition. But there's no and, purpose for it. But there's being a comic but, book. but no purpose. For it. So I can get just as much value out of the words without the pictures. Even the, the, the pictures are beautiful. I actually I just accidentally flipped over to my favourite picture here, which is on accidentally. You had a bookmark. No, well, you handed it to me this way actually. <laughs> uh, there's no page number, so I can't, I can't tell you what page it is. But it's early on in the book. It's right? early on in the book in the top right hand corner of the left page and it's a picture of the back of Deckard walking down the street and you can see an electric sheep sign in the background so once you see that you'll know which one I'm talking about my favourite picture in the whole book um, yeah so if you uh, when you come across that picture uh, let me know what you think or if you've got a favourite picture yourself favourite part of the book let us know what you think um, yeah I was, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought up the he said she said thing that's I mean it's it's such a literal like I said almost word for word <laughs> adaptation that uh they actually have, when the people are talking, they'll have, in, in true comic form, the dialogue bubble, the speech bubble, and then underneath it, he said. which In, is, in a caption. In a caption, which is, it's stupid. I mean, I'll just come well, right think, out and say it, it's just stupid. It's the, just the, the, biggest problem is, the biggest problem with it is, is that, um, as we said earlier, there's no point in this being a comic. If you're not going to use, um, you know, the tenets of comic book writing, and you're not going to use the strengths of comic books to basically create this you know sort of visual depiction with the speech bubbles and things like that then why are you doing a comic in the first place yeah, yeah but no, why not just, like, why like just publish another from, like an illustrated version of the book from, from an what <laughs> well, is an illustrated version of the book from an uncomic reader's <laughs> point of view sometimes following the the talk bubbles uh, aren't as straightforward as, as what they should be you, you, they but the captions aren't that straightforward either. But the positions they're in. But yeah, I followed that. I actually followed that quite well. Oh. I didn't have a problem. But I mean, like I said, I mean, the artwork is quite good. So, I mean, yeah. even though I'm not a fan of the book, I mean, if, if you listen to the Dust, Dust Jacket, I can't stand this book. But uh, if you, I actually found the comic more enjoyable because uh, of, you know, the because artwork, of the artwork. Was, was cool. And, and, and the, the artwork is not uh, based on Blade Runner at all. It's, it's, it's sort of its own yeah. creation. 
Yeah, which is a, a bit of a beast. But that being said, I still didn't like the story. It's a little bit of an effort to try and draw the characters to look like... It certainly took Deckard to look a little bit like Harrison Ford. Oh, no, I disagree. I don't think he looks like Harrison Ford He's got the Harrison Ford hairdo going and... You reckon? No, I don't. Rachel's different. Rachel is clearly different. Rachel looks exactly like she does. And also, interesting enough, in the book... I know we mentioned this uh, previously, but doing Deirdre's dream, uh, Rachel and Pris. Pris is the one that uh, J. S. Sebastian or you know whatever he's John. John Isidore. Uh, John Isidore actually look. They're actually from the same model, mm, exactly yeah, the same. Yeah. Um, um, it, so in the comic, they actually have that. So Pris yeah. and well, Rachel. Yeah, like, the, the depiction is not as obvious as say um, you know say George Genty's artwork on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where obviously he's trying to draw the characters to look exactly like the actors. But there's there's enough there in um, in the way he looks to at least invoke the image of Harrison. Ford. Yeah, it's almost yeah. it's it's um, it's quite subtle. Um, what I find interesting is that the, uh, so you actually quite enjoyed reading it, the comic adaptation. It's not something I, I it's not not something that I I couldn't put down, but it's not something that I felt an effort to read either. Hmm. That's good. I didn't have to push myself to read it. Yeah, so I found I, I actually do find it very. Um, very grating and quite drawn out and dull because it's basically just the whole book without without using any of I mean uh, comics are a different medium to novels yeah I think that says something about my preference to to novels over comics yeah I think it it really needed to to attempt more to play to the strengths Mm. of of uh, comics as a medium Mm. Um, but they could have done it adaptation of the story because otherwise I can just read the novel yeah Yeah. they could have done it like the the Terry Hatch, Terry Hatcher, Terry, Terry Hatcher. Pratchett, Terry Pratchett's um, last hero novel, which was written as an illustrated novel. That's yeah. how they could have done it. Well, there is um, uh, as a as a comparison, there was um, a comic book um, adaptation of Fahrenheit four fifty one released a couple of years ago um, by an artist called Tim Hamilton, which I think does a better job of of still conveying the story, but using. You know, using the comics medium and the strengths of the medium to depict the story rather than just, well, here's the book and some accompanying pictures to go with it. At least it's better than Marvel's 2001 adaptation, which introduces. <laughs> Marvel's new 2001 adaptation is awesome! That's terrible! It's Jack Kirby! <laughs> Big, epic, exploity. Okay, so pretty much in a nutshell, uh, avoid dust to dust <laughs> and don't waste your money, and, and the actual Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep adaptation. Nah, uh, if you're not really a comic reader, then by all means give it a shot. Uh, otherwise, avoid and just read the novel. Or if you're like me and don't like the novel, don't read the novel at all. Ratings? Uh, I'm going to give you the adaptation one and a half stars. Fair enough. Crystal? I'll give it a three, but mainly because of the reasons I stated before. Good. One. Yeah, I'll, I'll give Dust to Dust zero. <laughs> and uh, the oh, adaptation yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, Dust to Dust. Um, <laughs> Pointless. It's Absolutely pointless. Literally pointless. Just for the impact character, because he's pretty cool. Okay, so that's uh, Off the Racks coming up next, coming soon. So another short coming soon, as they will now all be. Uh, we've got opening the 28th of July, Hannah. So, young girl trained to be an assassin by Eric Banner, Kate Blanchett. I don't know, I think it looks pretty cool. Yeah, look, it, it, it could be okay, but it doesn't look like anything that I haven't seen before. 
you know, young girl trained to be an assassin. Yeah, it, yeah. It's I mean, not professional. exactly the most original idea in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm looking forward to this one. I've heard, you know, good things about yeah, it. Sounds it, sounds it, sounds sounds intri- it sounds intriguing. If, yeah. you know, not the most, maybe think, not the most uh, original. It's certainly a good cast as well, which yeah. hopefully will sort of, you know... Mm. I'm, I'll, I'll definitely give it a shot. I've yeah. never heard of it before this second, so my mind's <laughs> open. Mm, fair enough. Australia's own young man. Uh, also on the same day, we have Wait. Captain America the First Avenger. Very exciting. Next installment from Marvel Studios, part of the Marvel Universe Avengers lineup. What do you guys reckon? Um, I'm pretty damn excited about Captain America. The more the more I see of it, the more previews and things I see, the more excited I am. It's actually really starting to oh, look yeah. really good. The second the second preview that they had, uh, second trailer, is awesome. Yeah. Uh, Red Skull, he just looks mad. Yeah, Hugo Weaving. Australia's own. Australia's own Hugo Weaving. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really is shaping up to look like uh, a really top-notch. Mr. Anderson. <laughs> yeah, it, does look, it looks awesome. And uh, if only they can get... Only, I mean, yeah, Chris looks good and uh, everything just everything looks good my only problem is I uh, just they just don't make just don't let the shield be crap <laughs> I mean actually have a reason to have the shield I mean they've hinted at it where he uses the the, the garbage tin to yeah. protect I, himself I say, throws I it down say, the corridor the previews I've seen I've been yeah. throwing the shield and everything yeah. looks, looks, looks alright so awesome. when he throws it down the tunnel mm. and hits the yeah. Yeah. Nice the yeah, it looks so. great Crystal well, half of me thinks, oh, no, no, another comic movie, and the other half thinks, well, the comic movies we've seen lately have been very hit and miss. Some I've liked, some I've fallen asleep through, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> that wouldn't be a reference to X-Men First Class, now, would it? No, actually, like, that was one of the ones I liked. Um, I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's got that, that nice fine line between um, superhero film slash Indiana Jones serial um, adventure. Um, looks good. Uh you know, give my give you my opinion once I see it. But I'm looking forward to it. Coming up next, feedback. Okay, so this for for this instalment of feedback, we have one from Ozone eighty eight. So thank you very much, Ozone eighty eight, for sending in feedback. Uh, it's just like uh, the last feedback we had. It's quite extensive, so. I love the quality of feedback that we get. I mean, it poses a lot of questions and opinions, so it's uh, really cool. Uh, so, I'll, forgive me if I edit it a little bit, but it, is, uh, it, was, quite, it was quite long. Um, so, it's obviously talking about uh, the events from uh, episode zero and episode one. Uh, source code equals sliders equals quantum leap leap equals twilight zone. Uh, being there, done that, bought the T-shirt. I didn't like sliders and quantum leap much, so I didn't hold out much hope for this. And uh, I wonder if this movie was, in fact, a movie-length serial pilot for a television series that got pitched. Um, yeah, that, that that is a very good point. Actually, it did uh, come across a bit like a TV pilot, mm. you know, a glorified TV pilot that mm. uh, possibly was meant to be expanded on. That's not a bad thing. No, no. it was still it was still enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she also mentions uh, distracting romance, which I believe was richer made that comment that the yeah. romance was distracting I absolutely can't believe, agree I can't believe a male no she actually she disagrees I can't believe a male just said that the romance was distracting like it was a bad thing oh it was a bad thing it completely uh, derailed what could have been a rather interesting story I mean th- this idea that Hollywood has that uh, films have to have a romantic interest yeah but when you're not Michelle Monaghan you want to have a romantic interest but well, it, it creates a conflict in, in his motivation to actually complete the mission Preach drama. Yeah. You're just wrong. 
I also really like this uh, this point. Uh, Superman and Charlie Chaplin are internationalists. Only the Americans like only in America. The, these classic scenes can be yet again brought out and walked around in the five-second sound bites that the mass media news channels need to feed the goldfish-minded television watcher. I have a new hero, and his name is Superman. No longer, my friends, will I groan when I see the big blue guy in red undies stand with his hands on his hips and his chest puffed up. I'll cheer when he announces truth and justice, and I will happily have him stand beside Charlie Chaplin, a long-time hero of mine. Charlie Chaplin, in an interview with the FBI, stated that I am an internationalist, a peacemonger, and now so is Superman. Well, first of all, I have to say, Ozan, again, I like your taste. <laughs> I'm also a, a, a big Chaplin fan, so much respect there. But and but I agree with your, your point here, um, definitely. Um, mm. Superman has well and truly outgrown the American way and is, as you say, is an internationalist. That's a very good point. Mm. Yeah, it's no doubt about it. Although now they've retconned it. And, uh, and unfortunately we don't get the red trunks <laughs> anymore because he's changed his costume. <laughs> no, that never actually happened anyway, so yeah, it's I, unfortunate. I, I like the red undies mentioned there. What I love about Superman is an internationalist. As soon as that went into the media, DC went into you know complete meltdown. And yeah. two or three, almost about an issue or two later, it was, Superman, your country needs you. Yeah, it, yeah, it was a massive backflip. Mm. <laughs> she, she also has some points on our uh, top five villains. Uh, obviously made a bit of an impact on our top five villains. We'll do some more top fives later. But uh, this, this obviously was quite interesting. Doctor Doom is Voldemort is Sauron. Same evil, same thinking, same flaw, which is arrogance. Uh, the Joker isn't arrogant. He is the servant of chaos. Oh, and actually that reminds me. Luke... You'll be pleased to know that there was actually there was actually some uh, irregularities in the in the, ca- the vote counting. Obviously, it was held in uh, Texas. And, uh, <laughs> uh, we originally had Joker as number three, but it turns out he was in fact actually number two. Only number two. What is wrong with you all? Well, number one, as you remember, was Vader. And <laughs> let's face it, Vader is awesome. Um, so yeah, so yeah, number what, two, not number three. I apologise. So what was behind the Joker conspiracy? That's right. I fired the vote taker, which of course was Doctor me. Doctor Doom working <laughs> behind the scenes. I know. <laughs> Doom. He obviously spent some money. Joker don't really have. Doesn't have that much cash. So Doom just lashed out, and uh, so now Crystal will be counting the votes because I obviously can't be trusted, or I can't count obviously. And uh, probably a little from Colum A, a little from Colum B. <laughs> yeah, the uh, points that she just made with Doctor Doom and stuff, Luke. Um, I take your point, Doctor Doom is Voldemort is Sauron, um, but I, I think if you look at the characters themselves, can't comment much on Voldemort because I've not read Harry Potter or seen the films, however I will say that Doctor Doom came first, um, but with Sauron, Sauron you never actually see him, he's always sort of a bit of a presence, whereas Doom, in his arrogance, you know, loves to take the stage, and that's one of the things, that's one of the things that makes him such a great villain, this is, you know, he likes to actually say, no, no, I'm the one who's doing this, deal with it. Although you do see Sauron at the start. You see Sauron at the start, but then then throughout the rest of the story, he... um, The the major difference between the two is that Doom is not a giant evil lighthouse. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She also mentions Ozymandias. Uh, Ozymandias is human. He uses human judgment to find a typical flawed human solution to a very human problem. Mm -hmm. And besides his superpowers, he's too scarily real. So, yeah, just imagine uh, Bush with uh, Ozymandias' powers. That's pretty bad. That's a, it's an interesting one. I've never sort of really saw Ozymandias as a villain, per se. Yes, certainly he's the uh, antagonist of the story, but as you say, I mean, what he's doing, he's doing for, you know, I guess, heroic purposes to try and save humanity. So it's, it's an interesting one, but I've never sort of really seen him so much as a villain 
creating an evil alien kills, kills and sending that to the heart people. of New York City. But he does it with heart. He does it for the right reasons. She also mentions Q and Vader, of course. Uh, Vader, uh, no matter what Darth Vader does, even if we call his actions evil, we struggle to call him evil because we all too readily understand him. He's a reflection of us and what we've done when we fear and hate before we understand. Very nice. Yep. Uh, she nice also comments on the rendezvous with Rama. It seems as though at the time this book was original and enlightening, its message is now dated to the more experienced sci-fi reader. I would agree with that. I would agree with yeah. that. Um, it, it's very much a book of its time. That was, I it think, is. some of the reactions that we had to it as well. Exactly. It's, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, only, it's only problem is that, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a book of its time. It's just, I mean, there's been so many books that have copied it now yeah. that yep. uh, it seems diluted. Yeah. But also, I mean, it's, it's, it's a book of its time in that the, that sense of awe and wonder that it has with space mm, exploration and space travel in, in this now, you know, post-Challenger cynical society of ours. At the time of its release, this book would have provided an insight into human arrogance that otherwise may not or would not have been experienced by Joe Public and ha- have been seen as a timely wake-up call or reality check. But now its message is lost. I don't really see the human arrogance in the book. Mm. Mm. Um, the human exploration and, yeah. that, and that quest for greater knowledge... But it doesn't really manifest too much as it does arrogance it. outside of what happens with the people Mercury. on Earth and Mercury. Yeah. Mm. But that, I think that's what um, Azumahedi was talking yeah. about there. That's where, you know... The, um, the timely wake-up really, call. I think the whole idea is that, you know, of the two groups, we'd rather be the guys on Rama exploring because that's where all the cool stuff happens. Whereas, yeah. you know, all the... She also reminds us that uh, there is a movie interpretation in the works, uh, Morgan yeah. Freeman's... Uh, production companies but had the rights to it for <laughs> 10 years about that David <laughs> Fincher I believe 10, 15 years David, and, uh, David Fincher um, is, has been touted I don't know if he still is as the, um, the director but no, it's, it's been a film in the work works for at least 15 years yeah. there's, there's a lot of, unfortunately there's a lot of that uh, Forever <laughs> War which uh, Forever Ridley Scott is a lot closer to getting moving yeah well Ridley Scott Ridley Scott's had the right for that for yeah. about 20 years <laughs> and um Supposedly, Ron Howard uh, is looking at Foundation now. Ron Howard? Yes, unfortunately. Middle of the road, 6 out of 10, Ron Howard is going Ron to be uh, giving us... She also list. mentions the uh, Luke's the reboot. Luke's spasms. <laughs> Ron Howard directing Foundation. No! <laughs> she also mentions the reboot. Uh, Marvel and DC Comics and their universes shakes head. I think I'll stay with... Oh, I'm going to murder this name. Uh, Kazoo Kibushi Amulet Series. Kazu Kibushi, if I misspelled that, I've read his house, so I'm sorry. Um, and anything Hayao Miyazaki, who is a legend, Hayao Miyazaki, uh, the owner of the, the runner of uh, Studio Ghibli for Howl's Moving Castle and uh, Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke and brilliant, brilliant stuff, and I'm definitely with you there. So thank you very much for your feedback there, Ozone88. Very impressive, and uh, a lot of th- food for thought. And like I said, there was more to it, um, so I'm sorry for the editing. Uh, but uh, I did reply, so hopefully you liked the reply. <laughs> Feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. You got anything that you want to tell us or tell, uh, let us know about the podcast and whether you like it, don't like it, or doing it good, doing it bad. You want more Luke? I'm cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> we should post some pictures of Luke. <laughs> If I'm you afraid to scare away the readership. Then <laughs> I'm afraid those pictures would have to go into the sealed section. <laughs> family friendly people, family friendly. Uh, You're Ray, the one who started it. 
Rate and review us. <laughs> the whole kit and caboodle. Okay, so just before we finish off, uh, in our previous podcast, we had a competition. So we reviewed, the Dust Jacket review was a Rendezvous with Rama, and we had a competition to name the city in the middle of the island that was in the middle of the sea. I think that was it. <laughs> wow, that was confusing. <laughs> I was there at the time. <laughs> the first, the, basically the first big city type place that they find in the middle of the island when they go across the ice sea. The answer was, of course, New York, and the winner randomly chosen with our uh, very modern and technological numbers out of a hat is Therese Baldwin. So, Therese, thank you very much for entering and for getting it right. <laughs> and, yeah, well uh, done, Therese. Sorry if that question was a little confusing. <laughs> well done for working out the question. <laughs> <laughs> the important thing is that you've shown us how smart you are. <laughs> well done, Therese. Um, so, if you'd just like to pop us uh, a mailing address, uh, a brand new copy of Rondorama on its way to you. Congratulations. Well done, Therese. Okay, so as mentioned, uh, next episode we'll have Green Lantern as our popcorn junkie. And that's right, we're actually going to be seeing a advanced screening. So Green Lantern actually comes out after the recording of the podcast, uh, but we're lucky enough to get an advanced screening, so really looking forward to that. Very exciting, and uh, we'll give you our opinions before it even comes out. Hey! Except for our listeners overseas who have already seen it because it would have been out by that stage for about two months. Two months! What is up with that? So, uh, yeah, so sure enough, uh, you've seen some uh, reviews <laughs> online, so we'll give you our opinion, because ours is more important. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're on iTunes. Check us out. Rate and review us. Subscribe. www.nerdculturepodcast.com. Check <laughs> us out. A serialized story from young Luke. Very interesting. Roblox. Uh, Richo with his dust jacket reviews. Yes, so you go on Gangbusters. The last one was Player of Games, I do believe. It is, and uh, in the next few days we'll have the Forever War. Oh, Forever War, a personal favourite of mine. And coming up, we'll also be looking at this year's Hugo Awards as well. That's, That's right. right. We're, we're doing, uh, at uh, Dust Jacket, we're doing a rather mammoth task on our part. Um, starting in a couple of weeks, we'll be doing five reviews in five weeks of the five nominated Hugo Award books. In anticipation right. of the announcement of the winner on August 20th. Wow. Very good. Thank so you check go. us out at www.nerdculturepodcast.com. Uh, any feedback, we'd love to hear from you, especially uh, Richo's excellent, uh, did you read the Do Android Journal Electric Sheet before seeing Blade Runner question? Very cool. Uh, any feedback to anything Crystal said? Uh, if you've read the comic and the book, what do you actually uh, think about it? Uh, feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or just to say hi because I get lonely sometimes <laughs> and a hello would be appreciated hello Dave that uh, doesn't count when it's from you Luke. No. <laughs> I get hugs from you I don't need emails I'm so so thank you very much for listening and, uh, and thanks to everybody here thank Richard, you you're welcome Christoph, as yes. always Luke yeah. and uh, see you next episode bye bye everybody Smoldering corpse out of a wicker man. Wicker. Not the bees! <laughs> <laughs>